Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Borderline personality disorder. It's one of the most studied personality disorders and is the diagnosis for about 20% of all mental health hospitalizations in the United States and up to 10% of outpatient appointments for mental health. But is it more than just being a little impulsive once in a while? Who gets it and how can it be treated? Dr. Mark Stitham's in the studio, our resident psychiatrist, here to tell us a little bit more. He is an expert and board certified in child, adult, and forensic psychiatry, and he's ready to explain the latest in the diagnosis and treatment of borderline personality. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First in medical news, don't get a clot in your leg. But if you do, instead of the traditional treatment with Coumadin or Warfarin with monitoring, there's a new safe medication you can take. It's one of the newer blood thinners that doesn't require monthly tests for protimes or the level of Coumadin in your blood. And we've been thinking that this might be possible with some of the newer blood thinner medications, but the latest research has determined that it's true. The New England Journal of Medicine has reported that in a medication currently available elsewhere called adoxibin or Lixiana, soon to come to the U.S., you can actually use this after treatment with heparin, and it doesn't need monitoring. It's equivalent to treatment with the other medication, Coumadin or Warfarin, for anything of the venous thromboembolism or blood clot family. Now, you know, prior to this study being released, doctors were using it in some cases for those for whom monitoring was too difficult, but the proof about safety has now been established. This might save lots of people from having to go to the lab, go for monthly tests, including seeing their doctor and the cost of all of these visits, and the inconvenience. In addition to being safe to use, there were significantly less episodes of bleeding in the group taking this medication. It should be available in the U.S. sometime within the next three to six months. So what happened to the Hawaii Health Connector? You know, they were on the show on the 30th. October 1st came around. It was the date to go online, but it didn't really work out. Glitches in both the local and national programs were noted throughout the U.S., but fear not because the Affordable Care Act provisions start in January. And although the exchange is not fully operational yet, all signs point to the program being fully available online possibly later this week. I did just check before the show, and you can fill out an application, and representatives will get back to you about your options. However, if you already have insurance and expect to keep that through the next year, you don't need to do anything right now. We'll keep monitoring and let you know when it's working. Now, Oxyelite Pro, you probably heard about the cases of liver damage leading to one death and two transplants and plenty of folks island-wide hospitalized because of the liver problems linked to the use of this fat-burning supplement. Nationwide, it's supposed to be off the shelves. So why was I able to find it online and they would have shipped it right here to the station? Well, the company has publicly stated it stands by its product and there may be a few fake versions that are still being sold. The overall message is that until a full investigation is completed, no one should be taking this supplement, particularly here in the islands, as this is the only place cases have been reported so far. 
Back to being a borderline. Uh-oh, did you ever joke with your friends about this? Wonder if someone you know has it? Well, you know, there's a big difference from being a little impulsive at times, and after all, who doesn't love a good sale, to having a personality disorder. So here to tell us more is Dr. Mark Steitham, board certified in adult child and my favorite forensic psychiatry. <laughs> I'm going to want you to explain that one. Okay. We'd like to hear from you if you have a question about Personality disorder, in particular borderline, you can join us, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Mark, welcome back to The Body Show. Thanks. It's good to be back. You know, I think we should start, Kathy, by talking about um, what is a personality disorder and what is not. I mean, true. I mean, I think I have a lot of quirks, personality-wise. But well, you do. Does that? I, thank you, know, you so much. Yeah. Does that make me have a disorder? What, no, what's the no. Difference? The thing is that we all have personalities, hopefully, uh, and uh, we have personality traits. Okay. Uh, the thing is, uh, for example, and I was joking with you before the show, uh, all doctors uh, pretty much have obsessive-compulsive traits. Because medicine is so hard and you have to get all the details right that you better have some or you won't get through med school or your residency. So when does a trait become a disorder? And I think that the, again, as we've talked before on the show, when things interfere with your occupation or social functioning. Now, according to the DSM-5, which just came out, this is the latest Bible of the American Psychiatric Association. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5th Edition. It's taken 13 years to come out. But this is pretty much the same as before. Uh, a personality disorder is an enduring pattern, okay, so I have to continue, of inner experience and behavior that deviates markedly from the expectations of the individual's culture. This pattern is manifested in two more of the following areas. Cognitive, in other words, the ways people perceive and interpret themselves, like I'm special or, you know, uh, like the mafiosa for antisocial personality, that I can get away with this. Two, affectivity, which is mood how in labile it is, and which means how changeable it is. Three, interpersonal functioning, how they get along with other people. And four, impulse control. Okay? So this is something that uh, uh, personality disorders manifest themselves in late adolescence, early teens, uh, early 20s, I'm sorry, and pretty much stay for years. So it's not like uh, someone became obsessive when they were, like, studying for their law boards or something. So uh, borderline is the most studied, as you, you, you mentioned that earlier, um, and it's kind of a misnomer. Uh, originally, it was thought to be borderline schizophrenia, and it was actually labeled as an f- underform of schizophrenia because in severe cases they can have hallucinations and delusions. So it's kind of a misnomer, but it's stuck there. But basically, the cardinal features are emotional crises, self-mutilation, and chronic suicidality. Now, everybody, uh, not everybody, a lot of the audience has watched uh, Fatal Attraction, okay? Probably the best portrayal of uh, a borderline personality by Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. Now, <laughs> they're not always homicidal and put rabbits, uh, dead rabbits in stew. Oh, let's not talk about that. Okay, okay. well, okay. But the thing is that her desperate need for her dependence, her uh, slashing her wrist to get Michael Douglas to come back to her. So uh, these are the, the – uh, that's just a good portrayal, and she did an excellent job about it. Uh, most of these cases are female. Uh, it's about three-quarters. Um and uh, it's about 2% of the population. So in the U.S., we're talking about 6 million people. Now, how many people actually know they have it? I mean, if you're talking that many, then there's got to be quite a few here in the islands 
who have this particular personality disorder. Yeah. It affects how they function with in themselves and also externally in society. Right. Are we, we're missing these people. Well, we are, although they, they tend to, to consume a tremendous amount of medical resources. A lot of frequent psychiatric hospitalizations, suicide attempts, calls to the police. So they're not as hidden as like agoraphobia, okay, where women would housebound and their husbands and brothers and sons would go shopping for them. Uh, and, you know, they, they stayed and watched the television. They never got to the doctor's office. Borderline personality disorder people tend to, especially early in their um, in their life, uh, cause a lot of suicide attempts, ER visits. Now, the good news is, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, is that the prognosis is actually not bad in your fourth or fifth decade of life as they sort of burn out. In other words, uh, sexuality is a big uh, and sexual provocation uh, is a big part of it in using sex as a substitute for love. And so when people get, uh, particularly women, get less attractive in their 40s and 50s, generally, uh, they Look, tend to... You're going to get a lot yeah, of I'm, I'm, Yes, I'm yeah. really digging myself here. Okay. You're digging uh, With the exception mark. of Sophia Loren and myself, uh, we get better okay. every day. But, sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, okay. Anyway, so... <laughs> Narcissism, <laughs> the, isn't the, that uh, one of those Yeah, that's, one of, that's my personality disorder. Okay. We'll talk about that in another, another program. All right. But anyway, so... Uh, but the thing is that they tend to sort of like, uh, you know, burn out the things, don't get the same attention. Interesting. It doesn't seem to be caused by an abusive childhood... But about 90% of these people, Kathy, have an abusive childhood. So it's kind of like saying, okay, today there were three, pretend this didn't really happen. Today there were a couple of car accidents. All the cars in the accidents were Hondas. It doesn't mean that you drive a Honda and you're going to get in an accident. It just means that, boy, out of the three accidents today, Hondas were involved. Right. So out of all the people diagnosed with borderline, 90% might have childhood trauma. But childhood trauma doesn't lead to... Borderline personality disorder. That, that's right. That's, okay. That, that's right. Yeah. So now you mentioned that you usually get diagnosed in your teens or 20s. Is that because you wouldn't necessarily diagnose any personality disorder at a younger age? That's right. Yeah. It's like uh, attention deficit disorder. I'm a child psychiatrist as well as adult. And uh, some people bring in like two and three year old kids and say, you know, I think he's hyperactive. I go, no, he's two or three years old. Come on. I mean, running around and not being, <laughs> being distracted. So the thing is that the personality, our personalities are formed by environment, how we were raised, and uh, our genes. Like, I'm a very extroverted person. My parents were extroverted, especially my father. So the thing is, I was never going to be a shrinking violet, okay? So the thing is that, that but you shouldn't say that person has a personality disorder until at least 1920, preferably early 22. Because you might misdiagnose them. That's right. Plus, there's also the whole hormone effect of puberty. Lots of different yeah, things so, change for that's people. Right. That's right. Yeah. So if you're diagnosed, let's say, you know, teens or 20s, you mentioned that as you get older, sometimes you lose those traits that make it a disorder. Do you technically lose the disorder? Well, that's just it. It's interesting. The impulsivity, the suicide attempts and the wrist slashing uh, uh, tends to go down, but the uh, feeling of abandonment, uh, the dependency, the loneliness, which is basically a core feature, which is the person uh, has problems uh, latching on, okay? Uh, it's not, it's not now, now, there are things like uh, cutters, Kids that cut themselves or like, you know, they get tattoos or piercings, whatever. But the thing is that a, a high percentage of borderline have a wrist and forearm 
scars. In fact, you can almost, when they come in, that's, as I say, it's not pathognomonic. It doesn't mean you have borderline, but it's highly correlated. So this sort of self-mutilating. In fact, when I was a resident, they used to say, uh, if the patient says, as soon as I saw the blood, I felt relief. I go, boy, think borderline. And the thing is that the borderline, I call it the great masquerader. Every time I've been fooled by a diagnosis in my career, it's been, wait a second, she's got a borderline persona. Because they can present with depression, with anxiety, with um, mania. I mean, it's like the chameleon of all psychiatric disorders. So how do you officially diagnose it? I mean, we're talking about some of the features. You mentioned self-mutilation. You mentioned depression. You mentioned anxiety. You know, we've talked before about bipolar. And so when you look at all these different features together... If you happen to, I mean, is this the diagnosis you make on one visit? Do you have oh, several gosh, visits? No. Oh, yeah. And then you get to know that person and what's going on in their life, and that helps you to come to the diagnosis and thus hopefully the treatment? Right. The thing is that, first of all, it's rare. I, I've had patients come in. I'm sure you have too. And you look at them and their blood sugar is 500 or something, and you say you've got diabetes. Uh, it's rare in psychiatry to have an immediate diagnosis. Again, you have, sometimes you have to talk to the family. The parents, you have to get what's called collateral history, as you know. But again, going to the criteria, DSM-5, a pervasive pattern, again, this is something that's gone on for years, of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image, and moods, and marked impulsivity, as indicated by five or more of the following. Now, there's nine things here. So people at home, if you want to check these off, it doesn't mean you have it, but you might want to get checked out. Okay. The first, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So as an example? Glenn Close. She okay. could not be abandoned. by. He had a one-night stand with uh, Michael Douglas in the movie. Okay, And then remember, she shut Close's wrist. She just had to have him back there. She thought she was being abandoned by him. I mean, for him, it was a one-night stand. For her, it was like much more. Two, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization an evaluation. In other words, you're the greatest thing in the world or you're the worst thing in the world. Kind of sounds like teenage romance in a way. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. But to an extreme. Right, exactly. Okay. Three, identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self. These people do not have a good sense of who they are. Four, impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging. For example, spending money you don't have. Uh, sex, promiscuous sex, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating. Okay, there's a high correlation with bulimia, uh, which is overeating, not with anorexia, interesting. Five, recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, or threats, or self-mutilating behavior. We talked about the the cutting. Cutting is almost, uh, uh, as I say, very common. Six, mood instability. Intense episodes of dysphoria, unhappiness, irritability, anxiety, usually lasting a few hours and only rarely more than a few days. So very what you call labile, and you know that, which means very um, mercurial, up and down, up and down. Okay. Seven, chronic feelings of emptiness. Eight, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger, frequent displays of temper, recurrent physical fights. And the last nine, remember you had to have five of these. Um, uh, was is transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms? Uh, that's rare, but that would be like you're out of feeling like you're out of your body, okay? Or you're paranoid. People are to get you. 
Now, you mentioned that, you know, it's it's pervasive. So we're not talking about somebody who says, I hate Mondays. I yeah. hate traffic on Mondays. <laughs> yeah. I'm really angry and aggressive in the car. And then Tuesday through Friday, I'm fabulous, but Mondays no, are my no, day. It's, it's so a it's pervasive. Yeah. It's a chronic yeah. pattern. And it may be a pattern that someone, do they usually recognize it themselves or is it other people around them that says, oh, it's other people. hey, you've got a problem? Oh, sure. Because so there's not really that self-insight? No, there's not. In fact, lack of insight, there's a high correlation between borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. Okay, it's all about me. Okay, and uh, these uh, individuals, these patients, consume a tremendous amount of resources uh, because, you know, you call your doctor up and say, I'm going to kill myself. Well, then you're hospitalized. So the cost of the hospitalization. uh, And uh, there's a lot of problems with it. There's a phenomenon that borderlines uh, do called splitting. Uh, And I saw this. My very first patient, my very first day of residency, uh, was this uh, attractive blonde lady who did have borderline personality disorder. And she, as she stayed in the hospital, she told one nurse, oh, you're special, you understand me. But Dr. Steitham, he's not, he doesn't understand me. Well, the nurse was a newbie, just like me. And she said, I've got this clue on this patient, doctor. And so we had to talk about that. I learned about splitting firsthand, which is, uh, you know, like sort of the, the, the Madonna whore image, they call it. Like uh, a lot of times these women have... Mothers who were um, very nice to them and nicey nice, and then turned. What would you? Why'd you do that? And so the kid doesn't know they're walking on eggshells all their whole childhood. Like, whoa, whoa, what's mom going to be like today? You know, I got to read the, the the mood of mom. You know, and, and it's usually the mother. So anyway. And so what happened with this individual? They sort of said you were not understanding them, and yet this nurse was yes. absolutely their best friend and, and right. treated so them the perfectly. So then the nurse would come to me. Okay. You know, and so, but we, actually, we wised up, and you, and you have these team meetings, and you say, wait a second, you know, patient X is splitting us. Okay. As if this would help them in their own life in some way? Well, the thing is that it, it's, the, the uh, people with uh, BPD uh, tend to use superlatives. It's the worst thing. I never, ever get respect. I always am not loved. You know, it's always never worst, okay? Which, as we know, the world is gray. It's not black and white. Definitely not. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with child, adult, and forensic. We're going to go through that real (laughs) quick. Uh, Board-certified specialist, Dr. Mark Steitham. We are talking today about borderline personality disorder. And it's one of those things where some people say, hey, you know, it just seems like I know somebody who's constantly on the go and then suddenly can't get out of bed and then constantly going off to do something impulsive. But it's more than just that. We're talking about the difference between having a trait in your personality and having a disorder that starts to affect your life. If you or someone you love has a problem that sounds like it might be something like this, or even if they have other personality traits that worry you, particularly if there's issues with, with like Dr. Statham said, self-mutilation, we certainly want to hear from you, see if we can hook you up with some help. You can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. On the next Humankind. The real party started when I started doing this because I stopped having to hide and I got to find out what it was to be true to myself. An alcoholic who stopped drinking tells what she discovered about herself during a journey of sobriety. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Marketplace. 
What do you think it's like in Cuba? It's only 90 miles from Key West to Havana, and yet the Florida Straits, in a sense, are the widest, deepest moat in the world. Find out how Americans can legally go to Cuba to see for yourself the changes that are slowly accelerating in their society. Plus, we take a fall hike in the woods of Germany and explore the back roads of Quebec on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., following Fresh Air. Aloha and welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Mark Steitham. He is board certified in child adult and he's now going to tell us forensic psychiatry. We're talking today about borderline personality disorder and what makes somebody go from having a little quirk in their personality to actually having a disorder. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. I got to ask you, Dr. Mark, okay. forensic. Okay. Everybody hears forensic. and They, they think, think like CSI, Quincy. Or, or or... Quincy, yes. Forensic okay. pathology. Okay. Forensic just means the interface of law and medicine. Okay. So the pathologist is one. You can have a forensic ophthalmologist. But the other big one besides pathology is psychiatry, of course, because uh, – you have to have, like in the criminal branch, there's two branches, criminal and civil, uh, uh, competency to stand trial, insanity defense. See, the psychiatry, the law needs psychiatry in, in, in its expertise. And then in the civil side, which I do a lot of, are things like disability exams, like uh, workers' comp uh, or testamentary capacity. Was the person competent to uh, give this will, you know, to set up this will? So it's really fascinating because it's, it, I, I, you know, learned a little bit of law like that. And, and, and uh, so it's a, different, it's a different break. It's kind of like a detective work in some ways. You're finding out, like, uh, you know, what happened to this person and, you know, were they really injured or what happened? Interesting. Well, we're going to have to do a whole show about that sometime. Yeah, we should. I think it would be uh, very educational, particularly, boy, for me, but in addition, hopefully everybody <laughs> else. All right. So we're talking about borderline personality. So let's say you've been diagnosed with this. What's What do you do if you're an individual who comes to see you and you you say to them, okay, I think you have borderline personality disorder. I mean, do you just break it to somebody like that? And then once you do that, what happens next? Well, the treatment of borderline personality is probably... Uh, one of the most challenging in all of psychiatry. Uh, the patients tend to be demanding. Uh, they tend to lack insight, as we talked about. Uh, the, uh, the trouble is you, uh, you hospitalize them at, at, at that cost and inconvenience, or if you don't, sometimes they, they do commit suicide. The rate of suicide is about 400 times that of the general population. Uh, that doesn't mean that they always succeed in that. Uh, but the thing is, first is education. Uh, and ab- about what the condition is, uh, enlistment of family members. Uh, psychotherapy should be very problem-oriented. Like, how do we manage crises? Like, when you want to kill yourself and you call me, how do we handle that? Uh, a very direct, you know, supportive approach. Uh, medications, not so much. Uh, the trouble is that, for example, a lot of um, people with BPD, will request benzodiazepines or tranquilizers. and then Like can, your Xanax and your Valium right, and those right, sorts of that's things. That's right. We should say that. Yeah. And so that they can get dependent on that. There is no specific psychopharmacological treatment for BPD. Do you think because there never will be or because we haven't 
founded yet. Uh, that's Boy, that's a good question. I mean, it's a manifestation of so uh, many different symptoms. It's so many symptoms, and I think it's so many different parts of the, uh, of the brain. In other words, I mean, I think uh, depression pretty much is, you know, we're talking about the limbic system, which is deep inside the brain, which has to do with joy and emotions and rage and stuff, and, and depression. So I think, I, I think it's much more complicated than that. So, Kathy, I, 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 can't, I don't think there ever will be one. But, again, you know, the thing is psychiatry is where, you know, uh, medicine was 300 years ago. You know, the heart's a pump and the kidney's a filter. I mean, we're talking about someone described the brain as the most complicated two pounds of matter in the universe that we know of. I mean, certainly most of the universe's space is empty. So the thing is that it's like a black box. And the thing is that when I started in psychiatry, we had tricyclic antidepressants, which you probably remember, but they were very nasty. And it was like a shotgun. And now we're like a rifle. And we're not quite yet at the laser. And, and I, was, I think that it's getting better and better. I mean, the, the, the frontier of the brain is just fascinating. And, and things in neuropsychiatry that are coming, um, you know, they used to joke in med school, the, the top of the class and the bottom of the class go into psychiatry for two different reasons. <laughs> the bottom of the class because they think the, the hours are good, which they are, and the, at the top of the class because it's where the most exciting parts of medicine are. Well, and you're right. We do. We are in the forefront of discovering more about what the brain does. Even in even in non psychiatric right. areas, we still don't know. People can, you know, have a stroke and affect their brain and yet recover from it. How does that happen? Right. And if you don't grow new nerves, how do the nerves establish different connections and do different things? You know, they've said we really only know about what twenty percent of the brain does. It's not that we don't use the other eighty percent. It's just that we're not really a hundred percent certain of how that That's interacts right. with the That's with right. the body and the mind. So. We we do have a long way to go. All right, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Steve from Salt Lake. Steve, welcome to the Body Show. Uh, thank you. Um, just wanted to say a little bit about my wife. Um, I went to Iraq about six years ago, and uh, I volunteered to go. And I'm a captain. I'm also an RN. And when I got back, she had spent thirty thousand dollars on oxycotton. And uh, she, this, I, my son died um, a year before that. And she saw me bury him, and he died from a methadone overdose. And so at the same time this was going on, my sister was living in my house, and I came home, and now my sister has lost her nursing license. I'm three house payments behind. They're fixing to get it. I have three brand-new credit cards that are maxed out that I didn't know I had. And now the $30,000 that I had saved up for Lake House is gone. And I put my wife in rehab, and I did all the, the right things, so to speak. And uh, so she gets out, and it's been a never-ending cycle. This isn't my first rodeo. Um, my um, first wife uh, was an alcoholic. My two stepkids tried to commit suicide in my house. I mean, this goes on and on. And for somebody that's been, in, I'm very articulate. I'm very, my wife knows exactly how I felt. The first thing I said to her after I asked her to dance was, if you do drugs or alcohol, this dance is over. And now I find myself, uh, we've got a seven year old son. We've been married um, eight years. I've got a 17 month old. And it's just a constant revolving door of, of six months where the drama comes back and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please don't leave me, please don't leave me. And and in the military, if, if you can't control your family, you can't control your unit. And they kind of, you know, they offer all these different programs, but the bottom line is you have to control your family. And I'm just kind of stuck. We just came to the realization yesterday, actually, when I and I said, look, you've got to have a psychiatrist. I said, this, you're not two different people. You're acting like there's a good you and a bad you, and that's not the way it is. I said, I, I can't stay with you anymore. I don't trust you. I, I can't. I absolutely don't trust her. So how in the world can I love her? How can you love somebody you don't trust? And I know I threw a lot at you, but I do feel like she's a 
borderline personality because of, of the way she she just seems like everything is about her, and it's about I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and I love my family. Please don't leave me. She waits on me hands and foot, feet, just like she's trying to make up or trying to uh, you know uh, make up for all the things she's done. Well, Steve, I, I think that first of all, and we're not going to do a uh, you know a radio diagnosis, but I mean you're talking about substance abuse here. You're talking about a spending spree of $30,000 on drugs. But, I mean, so we have to raise the, raise the possibility of manic depressive illness, not called bipolar, or borderline personality. Anyway, the bottom line is absolutely psychiatric help is needed. I mean, absolutely. Steve, I'm so sorry all those things happened to you. And I think yeah. the hardest thing to do is going to be probably to have her acknowledge that and get her to see a professional and start working on these issues. And, you know, I, I, I hear you, but I'm almost scared for her to do that because then if we give it a name, then it's not my fault, it's a disease. And and you hear this so much, especially in, in my line of work. Um, I deal a lot with alcoholics and, and addictions and stuff. And it's kind of like, you know, even the diagnosis lends credibility to their, their misbehavior. And is I there anything that point. can really be no. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I see your point, Steve. You know, you don't want to have it turn out to be a diagnosis that, you know, now becomes a scapegoat. So instead right. of her apologizing and saying, I'm sorry about my behavior, it's more along the lines of, well, that diagnosis made me do it. On right. the other hand, I think the only way for you to move forward for yourself, for your for your family, for your wife, for your child, is to find out if there is a diagnosis because then there may be some treatment. And unless you find out what it is, it's really, really difficult to actually move forward to treat it. Now, uh, Dr. Mark, you've treated people with borderline before. There are some cognitive therapies, behavioral therapies. There are some things to do. Right. I mean, just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean the devil made me do it. Okay. Uh, And and the thing is, though, this this is very complicated, and I, I, I... Hardly back up what you said about all your misfortune. But the thing is that uh, the choice is either treatment or probably divorce. I mean, the thing is that she's going to need to be detoxed. She needs to get an accurate diagnosis. But, you know, her using that as a scapegoat or something like that is not acceptable. You make choices in this life. Okay. And that's exactly how we went down yesterday. And we've had a lot of talks before, but I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm not mad. I just got to tell you that. I can't do this anymore. I said, it's starting to affect me. I, I can't. I've done as much as a Christian can do. I, I love you. I, I forgive you. But I can't subject my boys to this. What happens, I said, when you're the one that hits a carload of cheerleaders because you've taken too many? What happens when you're the one that runs over somebody and you're sorry and you hate it, but you've killed somebody? What happens when our child is in the car with you and you you forget and you walk inside the, the store and leave them in 110 degree temperatures? I, I said, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, Steve. It does. And I think, unfortunately, because it's not just that simple, it's not you and her alone. And you say, OK, I'm going to divorce you. You're out of the picture. You've got a child. And because of that, it sounds like there's there's a lot more that, unfortunately, you're going to be responsible to do, but mainly for the love of your child to make sure that they're not put in danger at all. And, you know, we, and I know this, I don't mean to take up your time, but I've even, she's even, like, six months ago or a year ago, we went to the whole point where she signed over custody of the kids. She wrote a long letter. We, I signed it, she signed it, that kind of thing, before I would stay. I said, you know, I've got to be able to go. If you're messed up, I've got to be able to, to take them from you. I said, I'm, I'm not going to keep them from you, but I can't let you destroy them. I can't. No. And, and I'm just kind of, honestly, it's, I'm just tired. I'm wore out, and I've had enough. Well, and Steve, I just the don't other know option. If any, any bit of counseling would do any good anymore. 
I think honestly there's there's several aspects to this and one of them is to get your to get your wife professional help because she needs a psychiatrist to help her to figure out what she's doing, what's going on, and then work with her to come up to some type of treatment plan. But the second thing is, Steve, you may also want to be and look around for a support group because you are not the only person in this situation. And some of the things that you may need yourself certainly aren't aren't help for borderline if you don't have it, but rather help for the spouse or for the loved ones of the person who's suffering. So I think in addition to, to saving hopefully your child from this situation and also getting your wife professional help, I think you would benefit from talking with somebody as well, even in a support group environment that might be able to help you take the steps you need. Somebody who's kind of been there and done that and has some experience and has some advice for you because there are a lot of things, and, and Mark, you would probably agree, that I can tell somebody to do something. But unless I've been in that exact scenario, you never know exactly how it feels. And so, you know, here, Steve, he doesn't know exactly how it feels to have a wife who's in this situation. But there might be somebody else out there who says, my spouse said the same thing or my loved one was like that and help give him some practical tips. Well, yeah. I mean, who takes care of the caretakers? And the thing is, Steve, you've had a tremendous burden and you're burned out, as you said. The thing is, the good news is that you're in the service and there are resources available. I mean, you know, uh, and and you've got to use them. Uh, And and so, so go for that. You know, I, I don't know whether you're Army or Navy or whatever, but use it. All right, Steve, we wish you the best of luck and hope that things work out for you. All right, we've got another caller on the line. We have Adam from Waimanalo. Adam, thanks for being patient. What can we do for you today? Hi. Uh, thank you, doctors. Um, this is a great show today. Um, it always is when I'm on, yes. <laughs> There's that narcissism <laughs> again. Uh-oh, okay. What can we do for you, Adam? Um, I just was hoping that you could talk for a minute or two more about the relationship between um, a history of child abuse and the borderline um, disorder. It just seems that, uh, I don't know, you said 90% of the people that have um, borderline have had a history of child abuse. I was just hoping you could talk a little more about that. Sure. And I can listen off the air. Okay. Um, Thank you. Okay. Uh, basically, uh, and I was, I'm sorry, I was a little high on that when I was quoting something else. Uh, in uh, earlier studies, three out of four patients reported childhood histories of long-standing and repeated abuse and neglect. So that would be 75%, okay? But it's way, way over the general population. Now, not every, everybody, obviously, that was, uh, you know, abused as a child develops borderline personality disorder. And they thought for a long time that this was a causal, but they, they, they just think it's associated, like uh, Kathy was saying earlier about three accidents with the Hondas. Uh, so... They don't know that it's proven or that. But the thing is, there's got to be something here, you know, because this – what I found in my patients with BPD is this this feeling of emptiness, which is one of the cardinal symptoms, and this feeling of abandonment, and uh, real or imagined. And the thing is that, you know, what do you need as a child? We used to say in child psychiatry, you need a good enough mother. You don't need a great mother. You see people like, you need a good enough mother. And I say mother because still in the society for the first six years, the mother's usually the primary caretaker. But what you need is someone who's not putting out cigarettes on you or someone who's there for you. Okay, It doesn't have to be uh, you know Betty White or uh, you know June Cleaver from Leave it to Beaver. I'm dating myself. But it's got to be uh, a good enough mother. And I think that a lot of these people uh, you know, just didn't get it. And and they just they didn't know where they stood. And as a child, nothing's more helpless than, than a child. 
Well, and it sounds like in that situation, so if you are diagnosed with borderline, part of the process of going through treatment is to find out what are the issues in life that you're still dealing with and what what might help you to understand some of your behaviors. And if right. you look in your history and you say, part of the reason that I do whatever is because when I grew up, this is how it was for me. Interesting, Kathy. I was just reading about that. And this thing, going back to this stuff, it usually is not very helpful. In other words, it happened, it happened. So the question is, here and now, okay, and going back, because then you can get into that whole thing earlier on Steve was talking about, you know, the blame game. Blame oh, somebody else, yeah. Oh, my God, my mother beat me every day, so therefore I'm borderline. No, the thing is that it may have, it's certainly associated, it may be somewhat causal. But the point is that therapy that focuses on the here and now Problem solving, you know, how are you going to get that? What you need, which is a, a, a stability. I think. I think it's. A, uh, in fact, they were all going to change borderline personality to unstable personality disorder. There was. A I think in some that. cases in the ICD-10. Now that's the International yeah. Classification of Disease. They actually did classify it as emotional, emotionally unstable personality. So in some versions, they actually have, although not yet officially with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 5 that psychiatry is currently using. But you're right. Right. They have called it that. Sure. All right. Well, hopefully that helps you out, Adam. So there's a lot of people diagnosed with borderline who have this in their past, but not everybody that has this in their past is going to develop borderline. Right. All right. We've got another caller in the line. We have Joy from Kalihi. Joy, welcome to the Body Show. Yes, uh, I have, I have a question. Um, I, I don't. I haven't looked at the the DSM five, but uh, I was in a relationship with the person that was believed to have histrionic personality disorder. Okay. And there's a, a child now um, that has suffered some neglect, emotional abuse, and physical abuse. And, you know, I'm, uh, I now have custody, and I'm, you know, trying to care for this child adequately. But uh, I'm wondering, is there any research about how, how much the parents, a mentally ill parent affects a child? I, I know you had the, how frequent mental illness was in the parents of, people that were ill, but do you have the opposite statistic, like, or, or any research um, about this? Do you know of any? Yeah, okay. Uh, it, uh, yes, we'll, I'll, I'll answer your question. First of all, I, that, that 90%, I knew I saw it somewhere, it's the percentage of self-mutilation in BPD. Okay. So then I was, okay, so I'm sorry, that was an aside. Yes, okay, the histrionic personality disorder is also in the same cluster B. They've got these three clusters. They've got A, B, and C, okay? And in B is narcissistic, histrionic, and uh, antisocial and borderline. Now, histrionic basically means dramatic, okay? Uh, yes. Yeah, r- r- right, okay. What, what I would witness with this person would be manipulation of other people, of always needing to be the center of attention, Yes, obsession yes, of, yes, uh, yes. of uh, personal appearance, you know, all, uh, and many other okay. uh, exaggeration, overexpressive uh, gestures. Right. Uh, um, okay. I, there's nine, eight criteria here, which you need five. Let me quickly go through them, and you can we can talk about. It. Then we'll talk about the influence of the parents. One is uncomfortable in situations in which he or she is not the center of attention. Two. Interaction with others is often characterized by inappropriate sexually seductive or provocative behavior. Three, displays rapidly shifting and shallow expressions of emotions. Four, 
consistently uses physical appearance to draw attention to herself or himself. Five, has a style of speech that is excessively impressionistic and lacking in detail. Six, shows self-dramatization, theatricality, and exaggerated expression of emotion. Seven, is suggestible, that is, easily influenced by others or circumstances. And eight, considers relationships to be more intimate than they actually are. Okay, does that ring a bell there? Oh, yes. Actually, um, with this individual, it was suggested by two different mental health professionals that this was a disorder. Okay, now I want to get to your question because I think it's an important one. And you, you basically, what influence do parents have on the child in terms of the mental health? I think there's two answers here. One is, of course, genetic. We know that many psychiatric illnesses are genetically related. Uh, the most prominent is manic depressive illness or bipolar. There's a high preponderance, like 50% if you're, one of your parents is uh, manic depressive. Uh, but almost all of them have some sort of genetic component. So there's the gene component. Now, the other one is what's the influence, uh, you know, early on? And uh, there is that. I mean, again, the, we were talking earlier about the uh, uh, Madonna horse split or something. In other words, if, if you're, certainly if you're abused, you don't grow up unscathed by that, whether you develop borderline personality, but it affects you. It affects how you intimate you feel with other people. It affects your relationships. Or if you are raped by your father every week. I mean, you know. So, right. so, so basically, parenting is important. And, and, and um, uh, so I, I, you, you're, you were saying that the person was removed, the child was removed early on or? No, the, the oh. child um, was with that person because this, even though this person was unstable and unhealthy, they are still very smart and very manipulative, and they were able to retain custody of the child for several years. Wow. Um, I mean, this, this, it, was, it was pretty extreme, and even though people could clearly see it, um, you know, I, we would constantly be treated as though we were both fighting constantly, but actually it would be one person making false accusations against the other and, and the other just telling the truth. Well, when you have a clever uh, person uh, and manipulative uh, in a society which basically tends to still give uh, deference to the mother. Well, I think at this point, you know, I, I mean, I guess what I would suggest that Joy do is find a way to get the child, however old they are, to see somebody like yourself, a certified child psychiatrist, to make sure that they can work right now on trying to undo some of that damage. Because there may be some damage in the future. And best to address it now, try and get somebody in a better path, no matter how old. You've seen children and you've helped them enormously, I'm certain. So I do hope that, uh, Joy, if that's what's going on, you have an opportunity to get your to get your child into some type of therapy to help undo some of the things that have occurred. And again, I, I'm amazed and, and happy that you were able to get the child away from that situation because clearly that was not an easy task and you worked really hard to do that. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk with some more callers. We're talking about borderline personality. If you've got a question, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. We've all been in that situation, right? Trying to buy tickets, clicking away, waiting for that right time, and then... You know when the tickets go on sale and you log on a minute later and they're all gone. I mean, that's, that's extremely frustrating. I'm Kai Rizdal, Ticket Bots, and why they must be destroyed next time on Marketplace from APA. This evening at 6, following The Body Show.
I am Oog. I love girl. Girl loves Boog. It is bad situation. This week on Selected Shorts, Cave Boy Meets Cave Girl, from PRI Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha and welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my friend and psychiatrist, Dr. Mark Steitham. He's been on the show quite a few times and we're happy to have you back again. We're talking about borderline personality disorder. Maybe next time we'll talk about uh, narcissism there. (laughs) But uh, right now we're talking borderline. There you go. And if you've got a question or you've got a concern, we are trying to help distinguish between people who have a little bit of troubles and those we've heard about from callers who seem to really have a lot on their plate, a lot they have to handle. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Before the break, we heard about Joy from Kalihi. Unfortunately, he's got to deal with childhood effects of someone who, a parent who was not able to do what they needed to do as a parent and how that affects kids in the future. Again, wishing him the best of luck. We've got another caller on the line. We have Vincent from Maui. Vincent, you are a very patient, patient person. Thanks for waiting for us. Yes, I was. Uh, thank you kindly for taking the uh, time to answer the call. Even so, it's not a borderline uh, question. Um, I have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay. And I never knew that I had it, but I had it for probably, you know, since, you know, I was a child. And I never knew, and I was diagnosed probably 15, 18 years ago. And I used to take Luvox for years, uh, Seroxat, again, for years. It is SSRI, serotonin uptake inhibitors. Right, right, right. And I did find it that uh, technically while you're on the medication, uh, it increases the level of serotonin in your brain to the extent that you can function a little more on a, normal scale uh, level, and once the medication wears off, you're back in square one. And I stopped after, you know, years because I felt like I was, I was getting a jump start every morning. And after you can't get jump start your car every morning, you either have to change the battery or change the car. You can uh, So I was just uh, trying to see if uh, you have any different uh, approach uh, versus, uh, you know, therapeutic, which is medication, or any exposure therapy or cognitive therapy, which is kind sure, of, you know, sure. popular um, in the realm of uh, treating people with OCD. Because sure. If you don't tell people with OCD, I mean, you look like a fruit group, literally. I mean, because you have to tell them I have a OCD, and sometimes they think it's a kind of a new European car, and they're like, oh, that's great, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's great about it. I mean, uh, no, no, I don't do get it. do things and shape things, and I mean, I have difficulty when people behind me start coughing, sneezing, touching me, and, you know, it's like, oh, just stay away. I don't like to be touched. I'm not a cat. Okay. okay, let me ask you this. Have You, you, you talked about the Luvox. Uh, mm-hmm. ha, have you ever been in, uh, uh, have you had, ever had psychotherapy? I did have psychotherapy, and I spoke with a therapist. And when I'm talking and having a session with a psychotherapist, um, he's kind of like my ache, like my cane. I can lean on, and it's okay. And, you know, so I was like, okay, he's a rational person. He wouldn't put his life in danger knowing that what, you know, I'm petrified by. And I'm literally, I'm a germophobic. I'm petrified by germs. I mean, you can put me in a in a cage with like, a you know, three sharks, two crocodiles and like seven snakes and I'll be okay. But uh, if you tell me that somebody behind me, somebody might have a flu or a sick sure, and sure, cough and sneeze, sure. 
I understand. I run. I'm petrified okay. by that. I, I want to make a couple of comments. First, about medication. You know, you talked about your jump start every morning. The thing is that I'm sort of a therapeutic nihilist. I don't prescribe medications unless they're needed. But would you say that a diabetic that took insulin, does he need to be jump-started? I think that medication can help. It's not a magic bullet, but as you said, when you were on it. So I had to get glasses when I was nine years old to see the chalkboard. So I, I don't think, you know, I think you have to use that as sort of an adjunct. Now, the second thing is, are there stuff? Yes, there are cognitive treatments, such as like thought-stopping, and that can be done uh, and like you were talking about uh, desensitization and things. So, I mean, I think if you get a, a, a good cognitive behavioral therapist, and I, I can't, you know, I mean, I'm sure Maui's got some, um, you know, in combination with the medicine, I think that your OCD can be managed. I'm still looking for a good call, uh, good, good psychiatrist or psychotherapist here on Maui, and uh, I didn't seem so far to find one because technically when you go, when you psychotherapy, it's like one and one and a half hour, you're fine. And when you go out and it's like, wow, it's like a whole different world. It's like, oh, my God, what do I do now? Well, the person, well, yeah, I mean, the person should be giving you techniques. I mean, uh, so, you know, I, 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 you know, I think that there are some on Maui. I mean, I know some good doctors. But, um, but yeah, I think, you, I think it's, it's a one-two punch. I think you should, uh, if the Luvox helped you, you should probably take that again. And I think you should try this cognitive behavioral therapist. But I, I don't know, you know, I can't advise you specifically, of course. All right, Vincent, if you want to get the names of some of those folks that Dr. Steith knows, you can go ahead and email the station at talk at hawaiipublicradio.org, and then we can make sure to get you those names off air. But again, it sounds like, you know, Dr. Mark, don't just stop your medicine because it might actually be helping. And even though you feel like, hey, but I don't want to have to get dependent on medication for certain things, you mentioned diabetes is an example, you know, high blood pressure is another one. In order to make sure that the particular diagnosis doesn't harm you yeah. or doesn't really yeah. change your life, you need to treat it. Yeah, so, it's not like I, I take antihypertensives. I have for six years since 57. So the thing is that I take that. I don't think I'm dependent on it. I, like to, I don't want to have a stroke. Uh, but, right, and that's really the issue is yeah. you don't want to have a stroke. So you, know, you don't want to have that really disable you and affect your life. Right. So you do something proactive to stop that. Exactly. OCD sounds like it's affecting Vincent's life to the point where, God forbid, someone sneezes around him and he's running right. scared. Right. It's it's, it's event, crippling his essentially life. yeah, yeah, yeah changing right. his that's lifestyle. Right. Right. It's making him disabled in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. So prevent so I, it. Take yeah, exactly. Medicine. And I hope he does right in because I think there are certain techniques, but it's it's a multidisciplinary approach. You know, yeah. you you got to try the thought stopping. You got to try you know desensitization. You got medication. It's not there's not a single magic bullet. Don't I wish in life there was always a single yes, single magic bullet? Were, All right, yes. well, I O silver. No such <laughs> luck. Okay, we've got Robert from the windward side. Robert, welcome to the Body Show. Thank you. Yes, a um, few questions that I had for the doctor there regarding what are the what are the treatment modalities used for a person that is dealing with um, dealing with this issue of borderline personality disorder? Isn't one of the biggest problems that exists is that those people who do have it, it's possible for others to recognize it, but they themselves don't see it and oftentimes refuse treatment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they go through doctors, they go through spouses, they go through their family disowns them. Uh, uh, it, as I mentioned earlier in the program, I don't know if you were listening, I said this is one of the most difficult uh, 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 problems in psychiatry to treat. 
And doctor, didn't this didn't this first come to be ca- categorized or recognized in the in the manual back in eighty six or something like that? I believe. Uh, actually, I think it was uh, eighty. I think DSM three. Yeah, yeah. So, is this a situation which continues on forever? Does it's so interesting because being on the receptive end of it after a thirteen year relationship. Uh, with a woman, and immediately they drop you on your head. Yeah, you, know? uh, you, uh, you might, I don't think you did tune in at the beginning because I was talking earlier. The good news uh, is that in the third, uh, no, fourth and fifth decade, uh, usually uh, around age forty or long, older, uh, a lot of patients with BPD kind of burn out and they stop the impulsive and the you know the charging things up and the sexual promiscuity and the other things. Uh, so the, the, there actually seems to be a good, a fairly good prognosis. In fact, something like seventy-five percent of patients with BPD did not have it fifteen years later, or did not manifest it. So, how old is is your lady friend? Uh, fifty, fifty-three, fifty-four. Okay, there. and still and still uh, doing the behaviors. Or? Well, uh, yes, and I think that, uh, the issue to speak of there is uh, core wounding that happened. Uh, and dealing with narcissistic parents, and uh, particularly the mother, yeah. and a father who was absent uh, for a good part of the time and ceded his power and authority as the head of the family, right? And uh, a very um, a narcissistic um, mother who was who was very very difficult, and so that core bonding piece was missing from birth to six years of age, and uh, intense control over the child's behavior, and at a certain point as a teenager, the quickest and the first way to express independence is through hypersexuality. Sure. Are you still with this lady? No. Okay. No, no. That was, uh, but uh, I was quite astounded at the decision, the, the, the decision for the next one that she took up with, who was uh, several rungs down the socioeconomic ladder, so to speak. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, I'm wondering, what is, what is the modality for treatment? Uh, well, again, and earlier we talked about that too, uh, trying to avoid hospitalizations. Uh, if they are, they're brief. Uh, there's no specific medication. Uh, problem-solving uh, psychotherapy, supportive, uh, very much here and now, not talking about blaming the parents and all that jazz, not like psychoanalysis. Uh, how to deal with crises if they call and they say they're suicidal, what's going to be the procedure, a very sort of uh, matter-of-fact, pragmatic approach, but very challenging. And often uh, therapists get burned out too. Uh, they get oh, yeah. called call 20 times a day and, uh, you know, uh, and they get threatened with suits because you sexually harassed me when they didn't and, and all kinds of things. So uh, very probably the most difficult patients in psychiatry. Well, I think that's probably quite true. I think one of the one of the really tough and difficult issues there, of course, is um, not realizing. I mean, they can quickly and easily point out that their parents are narcissistic, but then for them to see that uh, they were raised in that environment and to have a, a complete lack of of uh, compassion or a complete unwillingness to uh, to try and to d- dissociate with any person who offered the truth. I mean. You know, sure. speaking truth can be very, very dangerous. Um, there was a carpenter on the plains of Galilee that learned that lesson a few thousand years ago. <laughs> and uh, it can be very dangerous when you speak the truth and say there might be an issue here, uh, sure. this behavior pattern. I think, you know, you, you hit on the biggest thing which we have in psychiatry, which is insight. 
Yeah. And the thing is that many of, because we're not talking about a broken arm or a broken leg, we're talking about the mind and a lot of people do not have insight and they don't seek treatment. All right. Well, Robert, wishing her the best of luck in the future. And also for anybody who's out there dealing with somebody who doesn't have that insight, it's a very difficult road to follow. So we wish everyone the best of luck. We have time for one more caller. We've got Lauren from Honolulu. Lauren, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, thank you. Uh, I have a short question. I wanted to know how important um, it is to see uh, um, a psychologist for getting treated for borderline personality as far as like their uh background goes like should you see a psychologist that has a specialty in it or there are many out there that are sort of like jack of all trades that, that you know like they'll look look uh take a look at you for many different types of mental d- disorders that's an ex- um, that's an excellent question. Okay, yeah. the thing is that we are specialists uh, uh, already, a psychiatrist, and then I'm a, like, for example, I went two more years, and I'm a child psychiatrist, and then I'm in the forensic. So we haven't got to the point yet where we say, okay, I only treat borderlines, or I only treat depression, or I only treat anxiety. The thing is, though, is that w- someone who should call a doctor said, you know, I think I might have. Uh, uh, you know, borderline personality, or some people have told me that. Uh, do you feel comfortable with those types of patients? For example, I don't take any patients with substance abuse. I just I refer those to other specialists, and not an interest of mine. So I do child and other things. So in general, we're not, as I said, not so super specialized to, to do that. But they they should have had experience with borderline personality. All right, Lauren. I hope that helps you because certainly you want to make sure that there's somebody who you're. Who's familiar with what you're what you're asking? Certainly, you know, even in the regular medical situation, if you want to make sure that you see somebody to talk about advanced heart problems, right. you would go to a right. cardiologist, right. and and you wouldn't necessarily stick with your internist. So it depends right. on the situation. And like you said, right. professionals work together. And if you know of people that you would refer some particular cases to, they probably refer other ones to you in kind. Right. Yeah. So, but we're not so specified that we only treat borderlines, for example. Well, and I think that's that would also be very difficult from the sounds of it. These are people who utilize a lot of the mental health hours, dollars, time, yep, and effort. It yep. would be very hard to have a practice just with that particular well, type of diagnosis. And-, <laughs> and you wouldn't be practicing very long. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, it sounds like we've had another really interesting discussion about a problem that a lot of people don't realize, borderline personality. A lot of our callers seem to be spouses or loved ones of people who are suffering well, again, from Kathy, it. Well, again, Kathy, we're talking 2%. So we're talking 6 million people. That's a lot of folks out there. a lot of folks. That's pandemic. Not pandemic, but anything over 1% is very common, as you know. Well, and for people out there who think, hey, you know what? I think my spouse or my loved one has this. The first thing to do is is help them to seek help for themselves. Right. Because that's really what it's about is trying to help one another. All right. Thanks again for coming on the show today and sharing uh, your expertise with us, Dr. Fun. Statham. It's always fun. We're going to have to have you on again. <laughs> All right. Dr. Mark right. Statham is a board-certified forensic child and adult psychiatrist practicing in the Windward Side. And if you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week like we do every Monday at 5 o'clock right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then.